The process of applied functional science is the transformation of the notion into the motion. From the Gray Institute, I'm John, and this is the Gray Institute Podcast. Hi, this is Kelly from Gray Institute. You are cordially invited to join Dr. Gary Gray, father of function, and Doug Gray for the Chain Reaction two-day live virtual experience, a two-day seminar that will provide immense value and immediate impact to your craft. Chain Reaction will empower you, the movement professional, to better serve and enhance the lives of your patients and clients in the areas of analysis, rehabilitation, training, and prevention. Register at www.chainreactionvirtual.com. The Chain Reaction two-day live virtual experience is November 7th and 8th, 2020. You will have access to the event video and content for 30 days, even if you cannot attend any or all of the two-day virtual event. Group rates are also available. Please call Gray Institute directly at 517-266-4653. Features and benefits for each seminar registrant. An ebook for the two-day presentation, access to the event video content for 30 days, even if you cannot attend any or all of the two-day virtual event. You can earn CEUs, 16 and a half contact hours, based upon passing the exam, followed by your certificate. You get to learn and experience applied functional science firsthand from the source. So register at www.chainreactionvirtual.com and we will see you online on November 7th and 8th. Gray Institute is internationally acclaimed for its innovation, development, mastery, and delivery of applied functional science, AFS. AFS is based on scientific truth, not theory, of how the human body moves in all three planes. AFS allows movement professionals like you to apply the best, most effective, and most efficient movements to any individual based on specific needs and goals. For 40 years through training, education, and mentorship, Gray Institute has equipped over 150,000 professionals with comprehensive knowledge in the principles of applied functional science. Whether you are a physical therapist, personal trainers, athletic trainers, chiropractors, strength and conditioning coaches, coaches, physicians, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, osteopaths, physical therapy assistants, or kinesiologists, our goal is to help you become the go-to movement professional. The Gray Institute podcast is questions-based. You send in your questions and we'll discuss them. If you're listening and have questions, email them to info at grayinstitute.com. We join Gary as he discusses optimal body movement and function for our clients. From Gray Institute, I'm Gary Gray, and this is the Gray Institute Podcast. Welcome, everybody. This is, uh, I believe, going to be a fun podcast. And the reason I believe it's going to be fun is because it's going to explain potentially why for years we have been doing videos and not podcasts. In our world of human movement, when we decided to take on the opportunity and privilege of teaching and sharing and empowering others, we realized one of our weakest links was our ability to convey what we were thinking, um, what the human body was doing, 
And therefore, we used back in the day these things called VHS tapes. So we got this huge camera out and we started jibber jabbering in front of the camera and we started demonstrating what we wanted to demonstrate and showing how the body moves and letting people see exactly what we were quote unquote talking about. In this world of podcast, I get a big smile on my face because back in the day, I'm pretty sure I could not have done a podcast about applied functional science, about the science of human movement, simply because we didn't have the language or the nomenclature. So today we're going to talk about something that I believe is extremely important. Uh, whether or not you're a movement specialist who has a responsibility of getting others to move better, uh, or you yourself just simply want to move and get healthier and uh, be able to do more things. Um, and within this podcast, we're going to talk about the power of language and the power of nomenclature. Now, I think I can get this started out by uh, sharing a quote. Now, the quote's kind of long, so we're going to break it down in a little bit. But it's from an 18th century uh, uh, French kind of nobleman and, and uh, chemist, uh, somebody that was extremely uh, intelligent. Um, but he believed that it's impossible to express what he needed to express without the words to be able to express it. Um, and uh, so he basically said this, and, uh, and again, I'll break this down because the thing I like about it is it's uh, a, a perfect uh, analogous quote to reveal how we present applied functional science and the importance of having a language of movement. So he uh, starts like this, the impossibility of separating the nomenclature of a science from the science itself is owing to this, that every branch of physical science must consist of three things. The series of facts which are the objects of the science, the ideas which represent these facts, and the words by which these ideas are expressed. Like three impressions of the same seal, the word ought to produce the idea, and the idea ought to be a picture of the fact. Now, that's one of these one of those that I have to read a few times and then after I read this one a few times uh, by uh, Antonio uh, Lavasseur, I'm not even sure I'm saying that right, I'm sure I have to take my French, which again, um, without being able to speak in French, uh, understanding and being able to express this is somewhat limited. Uh, sometimes the analogy I give is if you want to be proficient in the French culture uh, in the country of France of people who are born as Frenchmen and French women uh, and not know the French language would be next to impossible. It's the same thing in movement science. In the world of human movement, not having a language to express what we need to express is I'm not sure how we did it, and I think we're, a lot of us are still trying to do it uh, and feel and know the frustration. So basically he says this, it's impossible to separate the nomenclature of a science from the science itself. So in applied functional science, those of you who have hung out with us for a little bit, know that we essentially talk about 
Applied functional science as being three sciences, the physical sciences, the biological sciences, and the behavioral sciences. And within these sciences, we have what we call a series of facts. So I'm basically stealing from the quote here, the series of facts which are the object of the science. So in the physical science, the series of fact about gravity and ground reaction force and mass and momentum, those are the facts. And then the ideas which represent these facts, which in applied functional science, we would say, well, we have the truth, but we have the strategies, and then we have the techniques. And so the truth are the series of facts, which are the objects of the science. The strategies are, as our quote says, the ideas which represent these facts. In other words, the strategy has to emanate from the facts. So once we know the fact, the science of gravity, that it's a force that attracts us to the center of the earth, that there's a strategy that goes along with this that says, well, first of all, we strategically need to know that that does that to us on this planet we call earth. And as a object that has the ability to move, this force will get us to move in that direction uh, unless another force is acted upon it. And then, of course, the words by which these ideas are expressed. So if we didn't have words that could express the force of gravity and what gravity does and the strategy of gravity, the ability then to teach gravity and to take advantage of gravity and to understand gravity and to expose the wisdom of gravity just simply wouldn't be there. And it's the same thing in human movement. The movement science of applied functional science, we have the series of facts that are objects of the three sciences, the biological science, the behavioral science, and the physical sciences. The ideas which represent these facts, so for example, in the behavioral science, in the world of human movement, that humans Factually, we move in three planes of motion all at the same time. Our joints are 3D, our muscles are 3D, everything is 3D. Now, the ideas which represent these facts is strategically, there needs to be an understanding and an appreciation, and we need to take advantage of those facts. And therefore, there needs to be a technique with nomenclature, there's gotta be reflective nomenclature, Again, our quote that says, and the words by which these ideas are expressed in order to effectively convey that. Now, in our kinesiology books, that we said, well, we move in three planes of motion. There's a naked guy with the three planes going through him. There's this thing called a frontal plane, a sagittal plane, and a transverse plane. Okay, we have a definition of the planes, but we never got a definition of the words that give us the image of a human uh, taking advantage of moving through those three planes of motion. And so a few years ago, not that very long ago, my son Doug Gray said, I think one of the weakest links of our profession, and he's talking about all professions that have to do with human movement is our lack of language, our lack of nomenclature, our lack of ability to convey what we need to convey to have words by which these ideas of human movement are expressed. So we certainly have had the science, 
the understanding of, okay, this is what the human body does, but we've never had the transformation of those strategies of that science into the words or the techniques. Uh, I quickly at a chain reaction seminar and how I taught chain reaction without having the nomenclature years ago is beyond me. Um, and I would say, knowing that I did it, I did a very poor job. I just didn't have the ability to have the right words to express the ideas that I needed to express strategically about the truth of human movement. So at a chain reaction, I, in this particular one, there's approximately 100 human movement professionals out there. And I simply said this, I am going to take my body through a very natural human movement. I'm going to do something up here. And I want you all to use the language, to use the words, to use the nomenclature to reflect, uh, to express exactly what I just did. And then knowing that probably nobody could do that effectively, I then added this. And if any two of you use the same words, the same nomenclature, the same terms uh, to express this idea of my movement, I will give each of you $100. So that kind of perked everybody up until they saw me move. And so I did a movement, and since this is a podcast, you can't see the movement. Um, and that's, again, what I initially thought the limitation was of uh, our, our movement profession is not having the words to express it. That's why we did everything in video. So if this is a video, I'd go, and here's the movement. And you'd go, oh, okay, I've seen that before. In fact, I've seen it a lot. But nobody in that room... 100 movement professionals, nobody was able to write down on a piece of paper what I did. And those who tried started and ended up with a paragraph and realized that there, without the words and the rules on how to use the words, it was a bunch of words on a piece of paper that would never get in, give anybody the image or the words would never give us the idea that, want, that we wanted to express to reflect the human movement that we did. So I basically got a big smile on my face and said, you know what, we got some work to do here. We need to come up with the nomenclature, the language that needs to reflect our strategies that ultimately needs to reflect, reflect the facts of the science themselves. And knowing that, we started saying, well, what are some of the facts of the science itself? Well, again, one of the principal ones is that we move in three planes of motion. Knowing that we didn't have three-dimensional nomenclature, we immediately goes, well, this, this is going to be a little tougher than we thought. So we went back to the drawing board, and mostly Doug went back to the drawing board and said, listen, before we can express this, there's a number of things that we need to know. We need to know what environment the movement is gonna take place in. And we need to know what position the human being is gonna be in when they go through that movement. And then we need to know the action that that, that human being is going through and have an action, have a pure definition that we know exactly what that is. And then we need to know a driver and the driver needs to be based on the 
strategy based on the fact that in functional human movement, we're driven by specific drivers of the human body into, in order to accomplish specific tasks. Now, hopefully that was confusing for you because it was confusing for me to even try to say it and to understand what I just said. Therefore, understanding the space of three dimension, he went on and said, and we also have to have a triangulation. And I kind of asked him, I said, what do you mean by that? Well, he said, if we're gonna move and I'm a human being and I'm using, let's say my driver, my hand is a common driver. Uh, you'll see us do that all, all day long. You'll reach for something and the body, the hand will reach for something and you look at the body and you would ask, does the body move in all three planes of motion when it does that? The answer is yes. What position was that particular body in? Well, in that case, the body was standing. Okay, was anything else being driven? In other words, did the feet move or did the person just move their hand in space to a place in space? Well, it's just the hand, okay, got it. And so Doug said, we need to have this thing called a triangulation. And a triangulation, he said, would allow us to identify where in three-dimensional space did we use our hand as a driver to reach for something to facilitate the movement of the human body, knowing that it's going to react to gravity and ground reaction force and mass and momentum, as well as react to what the body just did. And at that point, I go, oh, this might be a little tougher than we thought, Doug. Um, no wonder no one has done this before. Um, and he says, no, I don't think it's that tough. I think it's got a lot of logic to it, like any type of nomenclature. It has to have rules, and it has to have logic, and it has to have a sequence. And I go, okay, and give me an example. Well, he says, even human language uh, has a sequence. You have a noun, you have a verb, you might have an adverb, you might have uh, something else that goes along. And so there's rules that we learn. And so if the dog jumps over the fence, we wouldn't put down in our nomenclature, fence, dog, over, jumps. In other words, same words, but there's a sequence and there's kind of rules that you have to identify the subject and then the verb and then what, what within that verb that subject did. And if it did something to something or over something, in this case, offense. And I kind of smiled, I said, okay, uh, give me an example. He says, well, let's go back to the example we just talked about. I'm standing and I am using my right hand, not my left hand as a driver, and I'm reaching over here on the bookcase to grab a book. Now, without having proper nomenclature and without seeing a video of that, you have no idea where I just reached. So if I said I'm reaching over here, well, okay, over where? Well, I could reach anywhere in three-dimensional space. So he says that hand has to be identified within a triangulation where I have to have a direction. I have to have what we would call an angle. I have to have a height and I have to have a distance. So in this case, imagine that I'm standing and with my right hand, I'm reaching to the right, but I'm reaching along an angle we're gonna call for right now R90 or right lateral or relative to the human body exactly to the right side of that body. 
So if it was in front, we might want to call that right anterior lateral. If it's a little behind it, we might want to call that right posterior lateral. But for right now, it's exactly right lateral or exactly 90 degrees uh, from the position of the feet of the body. So if the feet are positioned forward and zero degrees is where the feet are positioned and 180 degrees is the back of the feet, behind the feet, then 90 degrees to the right or R90 is where we're reaching. So imagine now I'm reaching there, but the next question you need to say is, well, are you reaching high or reaching low? Exactly. So I could nomenclate that exactly. I could say I'm reaching at 10 inches above the ground, but in this case, we're gonna make it relative to the human body that's reaching. So we're gonna reach right lateral at shoulder height. Okay, now I know exactly where the book is on the bookcase. So I know that. Now, the other last question is, is the bookcase real close to me or is the bookcase far, far away from me? So if it's far, far away from me where I have to not only reach right lateral, but at shoulder height, but I have to reach and keep reaching uh, and to the point where I'm reaching far, far away or what we call a maximal reach distance before I would have to reach my feet, that's different than if I would just reach to the right at shoulder height and the bookcase is right next to my shoulder and I grab the book. Why is that significant? Because in reaching with the bookcase close versus reaching with the bookcase far away from me creates a whole different chain reaction in the body. And therefore, we now have words by which the ideas that we want to convey are expressed. In other words, without you seeing a video of me, I would like you to be able to visualize a human being standing with their feet side by side and my with their right hand reaching right lateral at shoulder height at a maximal distance. In other words, as far as they can reach before they would have to take a step, let's say a lunge uh, and hold, or they would have to basically lose their balance. And already you're going, hey, I see that. I see that, I see what you just said. I can see that in my mind's eye. Well, if you can start to see that, guess what? We're now satisfying uh, what we need to have satisfied in order to have a powerful language of human movement. So let's kind of go back to our original definition. We have a lot of these, we have a lot of these sciences that contribute to the strategies that ultimately will drive the techniques that we utilize in order to facilitate human movement. So we need to have our language to describe what we see, but we also have to have our language to facilitate the environment in order to facilitate the human movement that we want the person have that we believe is ultimately going to help them, especially if we're in the what we call the curative sciences. In other words, we're somebody that somebody says, hey, when I do this, I have a pain. Can you get me to do that without the pain? And we immediately got to go, hmm, uh, I got to be I got to be able to uh, do that very effectively. Um, and if I was going to describe that to somebody, it has to be effective enough that when I describe it, they would see it with their mind's eye because of the proper nomenclature, because of the proper language. So we have developed that over the last few years. It hasn't been that long. But because of that, we now are able to describe things we never even dreamed of 
In fact, you really, it's almost hard to dream of things that you don't have the nomenclature to describe the dream. If you dream something and you're able to come out of the dream with somewhat of a memory of that dream and you didn't have words to describe the blue sky that you saw or the giraffe running through the valley or whatever you saw, it would be something that would not stay very long in your brain. It would be a very temporary episode without the language to be able to describe it. Well, that's been our weak link in human movement. Without three-dimensional terminology that reflects the fact that we move in 3D, without terminology that facilitates a chain reaction of the human body, knowing that that's a fact, a truth of the science of the biological sciences, that the body moves as a chain reaction, and without having the proper nomenclature that identifies the drivers, knowing that the scientific biological truth is that Physically, the body is being driven by gravity, ground, reaction force, mass, momentum. But biologically, we're driven by our intent and driven by our foot going somewhere. Oh, I want to take a walk. Our hand going somewhere. I'm reaching for something. Or our eyes going somewhere. I'm looking at something that creates a chain reaction in the body. So we have this beautiful language that we now know how to speak based on what we call nomenclature of human movement. And again, the nomenclature has to identify, first of all, the environment that I'm in. So in our original uh, example, uh, if I was to say I was outside uh, on the edge of a mountain, having me reach to the right to a bookshelf somehow wouldn't compute. Very rarely do we see bookshelves on the side of a mountain. But if I was to say, I'm in my office, uh, immediately the context of that is you're probably on flat ground. You're probably not on the edge of a mountain. You're probably on a floor that was developed for that building to create some degree of stability and you'd be entirely correct. So we would call that a default. In other words, if we basically don't identify the environment that I'm on a pitched surface of 28 degrees left to right, um, without saying that, then we're going to assume you're on a flat surface. Uh, even then, I can create some texture to that surface and say, well, I want to give a little more nomenclature to that surface, and I'm going to say it's flat, but it's sand. So that's a different chain reaction. That's going to be a different movement that I've, I'm on a flat surface. I then again, as we said, I have to describe a position. So I could have done the same thing we just described, but I could do it from sitting. So I'm basically nomenclating that I'm in my office, I am sitting, and I do a right hand, right lateral reach at shoulder height at maximal distance to pull a book out of the bookshelf. Believe it or not, you're visualizing that right now. You don't see it on video, but I gave you enough words and enough rules to the words and enough context to the words that you go, wait a minute, I can see that. I can definitely feel and see that. And so if we're able to have the environment identified and we're able to have the position that I'm in, either at the start of the movement or at the end of the movement, and if they're different, both, and if I'm able to describe the action, 
such as a lunge, such as a balanced reach, such as a just a regular reach, uh, such as a pivot, such as a jump, uh, such as a punch, such as a swing, such as all the actions that we can give definitions to, and then identify a driver, one of the main drivers of the body, eyes, hands, or feet, and then identify the triangulation where the driver is going within the action. So for example, I might say, I am going to do, I'm gonna be standing, and I'm gonna be standing with my right foot in front of my left a little wider than normal with my feet toed out. I'm kind of in this athletic position ready to go, and I am going to take my left foot and I'm gonna drive it forward and I'm gonna bring it back. I'm gonna let it hit the ground and bring it back. Well, instead of saying all those words, I could just say, do a left anterior lunge. Well, immediately lunge means I'm going somewhere in space and since lunge has a default of what being on the ground, going to the ground and, re, and coming back to that same place, immediately knowing that definition, you would go, well, wait a minute, He's standing, right foot in front, a little wider than normal, a little externally rotated than normal, and he's gonna take that foot and he's gonna take it out in front of him, anterior relative to something. We have to know what that is relative to. Where, where is anterior now? And then I would then come back. Well, nomenclature is um, more powerful when it can be, first of all, be, consist be consistent, but also have the ability to reduce the number of words. So try this one on for size. Uh, R, W, E, right foot into your lunch. Here's what I just said. The default, since I didn't say anything, is that I'm in an empty room, flat floor, standing up, and I am standing RWE, which means my right foot's in front, I'm a little, my feet are a little wider than shoulder width apart, and my both my feet are externally rotated, and I decide to take my right foot and drive it forward in space to the ground and then bring it back, or what we would call a right anterior lunge. Well, that's pretty powerful, uh, because as soon as I said that, without you knowing all the words and all the rules, you saw me do it. In other words, with your mind's eye again, you saw me do it. Well, that's powerful. That's really powerful. So now we have this ability to utilize words that are very acceptable to the biomechanical world of human movement, the kinesiological world of human movement, such as anterior posterior, some people like to use forward and backward, right lateral, left lateral, to the right, to the left, sideways to the right, sideways to the left, or right rotational or left rotational, or twist to the right, twist to the left. Pretty common words, but guess what? We just covered all six primary angulations that would are necessary in order to cover our three-dimensional space. As soon as I have my angulations covered, and therefore, if I said, well, I want a real specific angulation, I don't want it to be just pure anterior, what we might call zero degrees, I want it to be right, what I call anterior lateral. So I don't want it to be pure lateral 90 degrees, I want right anterior lateral, that's at 45 degrees. 
So instead of lunging to zero degrees and back, I'm going to lunge right anterior lateral. So my foot's going to go along what we would call R45. Now, we can get even more nitpicky. Let's say I want to lunge along R50, a little less sagittal plane, a little more frontal plane. In other words, a little more along the lateral, a little less on the interior. I could do that. We can knock it down into all 360 degrees of the angulation if we so desire. The verticality is the same thing. The verticality is relative to my body height. However, I can be uh, anywhere in space and say, I am going to take my left hand. I'm going to be standing in L XX, which means my left foot's forward. XX means me, I'm kind of neutral. And I'm doing a basically a anterior reach at knee height. Well, for me, knee height would probably be about 13 or 14 inches. But if I wanted to be specific, that everybody would reach the same height, not relative to my knee height, I would say left anterior reach at 14 inches. So we would have to document where 14 inches was uh, above the ground. And so that could be nitpicky. I could say left hand, L28, reach at 19 inches. So my left hand is reaching along uh, 28 degrees off zero to the left, which of course isn't quite to left anterior lateral yet. It's probably a little bit almost close to halfway in between, but I'm reaching at that exact angulation at that verticality. Now the only thing left is the distance or what we would call the horizontal displacement. So we have the angulation, we have the verticality, the height, and we now we have what we call the horizontal displacement. Well, those of us who kind of played with logic and math and trig, we have the XYZ coordinates. And so now I can say I am going to reach and I could have a what I call a minimal reach, which I just basically reach out and the thing's kind of close to me. Or I have a moderate reach where now I basically have to take my center of gravity and take it a little bit beyond kind of where my center of gravity lives. Or then even maximal reach where I take my center of gravity even beyond uh, the base of my feet where I have to reach out there. Or I could say this. Uh, let's go uh, R, N, which would be narrow, I. So I'm standing with my right foot forward, narrow, both feet internally rotated, left hand, left lateral reach at 18 inches at 30 inches. And so I'm 18 inches above the ground, but 30 inches away from the center of where my feet would bisect. And so that is a exact position relative to space, relative to me, that gives me an exact description of what I want to have happen with my human body. So again, hopefully you're kind of like me going, oh, wait a minute, this is kind of simple. Um, it's, you know, these foot positions are kind of easy, either right foot forward, left foot forward, or kind of relatively neutral, X, wide or narrow, in the frontal plane, toed in or toed out, or maybe just one foot is toed out, uh, is pretty powerful. And then we describe the action. So let's see, let's see what you feel here 
without doing this. In other words, see what you can feel. I want you to go R, X, E. And I want you to simply squat. And I want you to do a moderate squat, not a minimal squat where you kind of go down, not a maximal squat where you go as far down as you can. I want you to do a moderate squat. And I want you to share with me which calf, i.e. which Achilles tendon do you feel is being stressed a little more? So in your mind's eye, you're going, wait a minute. My right foot's in front, my left foot's back. I'm about shoulder width apart, but I'm externally rotated and I just squatted. I can sense that, I can feel that. It's my left calf that's getting more stress because I'm going into more ankle dorsiflexion along because I'm towed out with the squat going into a little more eversion, which turns on my soleus, which turns on my gastroc, which turns on my calf. And if you even smelled that, if you even felt that, if you could see that, guess what? You're way ahead of the game in understanding the nomenclature of human movement. The point is, we need to know that if we're going to grow as movement specialists, if we're going to describe things to each other as movement specialists, if we're going to do anything talking about the chain reaction biomechanics, we got to know our nomenclature. As our quote said, we have to have three basically basic, basic things. We have to have the series of facts and the objects of the science and the ideas which represent these facts and the words by which these ideas are expressed. So I have the idea that I want you to be able to unload your left lumbar sacral facet joint in all three planes of motion. Therefore, I'm gonna build upon the scientific truth that if I can get your lumbar spine to flex, and if I'm talking about my left lumbar sacral junction, at the same time, laterally flex to the right, at the same time, rotate in such a way that your pelvis moves away, the sacrum moves away from L5, then I can unload that facet in all three planes of motion. So scientifically, I, I know what I want to do and why. I now have the image, I have the strategy. I want to use authentic drivers in order to facilitate that. Now, I can use the authentic driver of, drivers of the eyes, of the hands, or of the feet, or all the above. For right now, I want to make it oh, relatively easy on me. So I want to do something that creates trunk flexion to unload the facet in the sagittal plane. So for right now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take my right hand and I'm going to do a right anterior reach at knee height. And without saying a horizontal distance, it's going to be what we call self-selected. So I'm going to reach out there to a point where I'm kind of comfortable that I can reach out there. Where if you looked at me and you're looking at me already on the podcast, you're seeing that I'm going through trunk flexion. And you're seeing just by having me reach my hand out in front of my knee anteriorly, I am going through trunk flexion. And you're accomplishing the goal of unloading the lumbosacral facet on the left. Now, to really create what we would call a top-down lateral flexion, I want you to imagine doing something with your left hand to get my trunk to laterally flex to the right to unload that left lumbosacral facet. And you're exactly right. You're already thinking, well, if you just took your head above your, your left hand above your head and you reached across the top of your head, immediately your whole trunk would laterally flex to the right. At the same time, you're reaching anteriorly uh, 
at knee height. And so you'd go, wait a minute, that's pretty cool. Left hand, right lateral to overhead reach. Exactly. That would create the left lateral flexion of the trunk and unlock the facet in the frontal plane. With my right anterior, with my right hand anterior reach at knee height, which creates the flexion. And you go, whoa, this is cool. Because I can see it, I can feel it, I can sense it, but we're only on a podcast. Gary's not using video. He's not cheating with video. And then I would say, now what I want you to do is understand that the sacral facets relative to the lumbar facets, the lumbar facets, especially on the left, you would have to get the L5 to rotate to the left top down in order to create a gap there. That's just, again, based on the scientific fact that that's how that joint is articulated. And so now what we have to do is we have to create truncal rotation to the left at the same time. Well, let's do this. Instead of reaching our right hand, anterior knee height, let's reach our right hand, left rotational at knee height. So I'm gonna take my right hand and still stay at knee height, but my hand's gonna rotate way around to the left. How far? Self-selected. At the same time, I'm taking my left hand and doing right lateral to overhead. So I'm going over the top of my head. So you would look at me and go, if you looked at me from the back, you'd say, that's fascinating. Your trunk's flexing, laterally flexing to the right and rotating to the left. And if you were the right lumbosacral facet joint, you'd say, oh, this is really intriguing because with those words, facilitating the train reaction in an environment with, a, with two drivers, with the action of reach, utilizing the triangulation with both of your actions of reach, you have now facilitated a chain reaction in the left lumbosacral junction to facilitate the desired chain reaction that you wanted. And guess what? That's what you just did. That's what you just thought of. That's what you just went through. Without the nomenclating words, we would have never got there. If you want to have fun, call up another movement specialist on the phone so they can't see you, can't, you can't uh, use your fancy phone with a video, and you have to say to them, I am your uh, subject on the other end of this phone. Can you use words to tell me how to create a top-down chain reaction at my lumbosacral junction in all three planes of motion to alleviate the abnormal stress to make my left low back feel better? And if they don't know the nomenclature, if they don't know the words, first thing they might do is just hang up on you. Second of all, they will struggle. They will struggle trying to come up with something, some type of wordage, imagery, that would get you at the other end to exactly do what I just did with you, and that's take you through the exact movement that I wanted, including the motions of lateral flexion to the right flexion and uh, left rotation at the lumbosacral junction. Now remember, part of our nomenclature is understanding our definitions and terminology. Motions are what happens at joints, and movements are the total body reaction that the body does. So if I looked at the whole body, it's going through that movement, 
But then if I said, and what are the motions that are occurring? Well, we know it's motions that are occurring at the lumbosacral junction. We just went through that. But my next question might be, and can you tell me the three motions that are happening at the left hip? Well, again, don't kind of try to overanalyze it. In fact, don't even get up and do it if you're sitting down and don't even do it if you're standing. Go through the imagery of my right hand at knee height, rotating to the left with my left hand going over the top of my head, right lateral reach at overhead, and now sense exactly what your left hip's doing. You now know your left hip is going through flexion, adduction, and internal rotation, turning on the glutes in all three planes of motion, which is a very powerful three motions to go into to turn the glutes on. And so you use the power of nomenclature the words by which the ideas that we want to express are able to be expressed from the strategy. The strategy here was to create power in the left hip at the same time, unload the lumbosacral facet in all three planes of motion in the left low back with words that we all can agree upon, with rules that we all agree upon, creating nomenclature, creating a language that is flat out powerful. Now, Good news is we've gone through this for, uh, for enough time that we have the various environments that we can utilize uh, and the various actions that we utilize and the various drivers that we utilize from the various positions that we utilize along the triangulation that doesn't change. In other words, the relative triangulation is always an angle, always a... Um, verticality and always a horizontal quadrant. Another way, another way I sometimes describe that is pretend you're a fighter pilot and you all of a sudden hear over your radio that there is a zero, a, another plane that is, wants to attack you and shoot you out of the air. Well, in order for you to respond, in order for you to see where that plane is, you better know three things. You better know at what angle this, this opponent is coming at you. So when you're playing, you would want to know, where, where is this guy coming? Well, if he's coming right up your butt, he's coming at 180. If he's coming head on, he's at zero. They might say he's coming at R45. Immediately, you'd look 45 degrees to your right, and you'd go, okay, I don't see him yet. What else do I need to know? Well, you gotta know another thing. You gotta know, is he at the same level as you? Is he below you or is he above you? And you need to know the verticality. So they may say he's at R45, but he's a quarter mile higher than you. Okay, immediately you're gonna start looking up. Here's the last thing you need to know. How far away is he along the horizontal distance? Because if he's really close, at R45 and just a half mile up, you're gonna, he's gonna be on top of you and you'll see him right there. But if he's, let's say five miles out, all of a sudden your eyes are gonna gaze down a little bit and then you'll see a little spot out there going, man, I'm glad you warned me a little bit earlier. So they just gave you a triangulation that immediately allowed your brain to identify where your opponent is now so you can hopefully do something about it. Well, that's what human movement is. Human movement is giving our authentic drivers of the body a XYZ coordinate of somewhere to go and either come back or go and then go somewhere else to facilitate the desired chain reaction in order to 
repeat and reflect the truths of human movement that are now strategically uh, organized in your mind in order to create what you want to create. And this gets exciting. Now, this has been kind of a fun podcast because, again, I'm throwing words at you, and I'm expecting you to sit there and go, I'm driving or listen to this, on, you know, with my, my earphones on or my little earplugs on, and the, this is pretty cool. Because if you can tell me you have language for every form of human movement, including jumping and what we call jopping and throwing and swinging and punching and kicking, then I'm in. Guess what? We have the nomenclature for all of that. We have to. We can't limit it. We can't limit our human movement nomenclature to just a few actions or a few activities. We have to have basic terminology and we have to have definitions for everything. Uh, In other words, we have a reach, uh, a leg reach, what we call a foot reach. So imagine you're doing this. Say you're standing. In this case, it's not default where we're XXX. We're going to go left single leg balance. So you immediately go, okay, you're balancing on your left lower extremity. I'm going to do a right foot right into your lateral reach at knee height. Immediately you can sense you taking your right foot out along R45 of the right anterior lateral angulation and reach at knee height, which is not as high as hip height and not as low as ankle height or what we'd call ground height. And I'm going to have you reach and I'm going to have you come back home and create a chain reaction in your entire body, in your left foot and ankle, in your left knee, your left hip, your your thoracolumbar spine, your cervical spine, your shoulders, because everything's going to have to move when you do that. And you'd go, okay, I reached and I came back. Now, what if I said, I want you to do a right foot swing? Well, the, we have to have a definition for swing. The only difference is your right knee is going to be extended. So you're going to swing your foot to that spot in space and then bring it back. Different chain reaction. What if I said the word kick instead of reach? Well, there's something that happens at the end of that reach that doesn't happen at the normal reach. So we have a new movement facilitated by new nomenclature, facilitated by specific definitions of that nomenclature in order to reflect or have the appropriate words by which the ideas that we're thinking are properly expressed relative to the strategies of applied functional science or the science of human movement. And so you'll recognize, if you followed us any time, that the environment, that the Triangulation, which is the height, direction, and distance, which is the position and the driver and the action can also be enhanced by load, can be enhanced by duration, can be enhanced by rate, that those 10 what we call terms are part of our tweakology. Well, of course, it's part of our tweakology because when we tweak movement, we tweak movement, and therefore you're going to tweak the nomenclature. He jumped how? High. That's a tweak to the jump. And therefore, uh, we can utilize our tweakology terminology, or what a lot of people will call our observational essentials of human movement, that are the exact same thing as our nomenclature. Well, Doug developed the nomenclature first. From that became our powerful tweakology, the science of tweakology, and from that became our observational essentials. Here's kind of the key to the whole thing. 
without an understanding and knowing how to speak function, it's going to be very, very hard to follow a career in functional movement. And therefore, if we can't speak function, we're going to be inhibited in our ability to think what we want is best for our patient or client or athlete. And more importantly, to make it even a better movement by tweaking it or even more importantly, to be able to describe without the use of video, with the use of proper terms, what our patient, what our client, what our athlete is revealing when they go through a certain movement. We have to have the nomenclature of the movement uh, in order to do that. And that's basically what this quote said. This, with this quote, I'm gonna, uh, we've never presented it at a chain reaction seminar, but our chain reaction seminar we're gonna be doing here coming up on Saturday and Sunday, a virtual one on the 7th and 8th, and you might be listening to this afterwards, so uh, we'll be doing more. But in order to be a, what I would call a, a motivated and a confident and a competent and a excited and a growing movement professional, we need to know the nomenclature. It's impossible to grow without the nomenclature. And with that nomenclature, we then can take advantage of understanding our chain reaction biomechanics, how the body really moves. Because when it's all said and done, our job is to create the environments to facilitate with authentic drivers, individualized programs that we manage and direct in order to create the desired chain reaction in order that the person can move better, more effectively, more efficiently, and without pain, and be able to move hopefully productively for the rest of their life. That's our job without the nomenclature to describe and to reflect the words by which the ideas that we want to impart upon our patients and clients without the words, we just can't do it. And we certainly can't build upon it because the key to nomenclature is once you know your nomenclature, you can build upon it and even get better ideas and better knowledge and better understanding of chain reaction biomechanics and better ways to create environments. So it's all about the nomenclature. The impossibility of separating the nomenclature of a science from the science itself is owing to this, that every branch of physical science must consist of three things. The series of facts were the, which are the objects of the science, we call those the principles and the truths. The ideas which represent these facts, we call those the strategies. And the words by which these ideas are expressed, we call that the techniques that are described effectively by our applied functional science nomenclature. Like three impressions of the same seal, the word ought to produce the idea and the idea to be a picture of the fact. Without the words, without the proper nomenclature words, we are limited in our ability to produce the idea. We're limited in our ability to even dream of better environments and better movements and motions for our patients and clients to enhance their lives. So I hope you'd enjoyed this. Uh, again, I still, I'm still grinning because um, couldn't have done this years ago. We didn't have this. And now that we're able to share it with you and you, we can share it with each other, I think it's critical that we know the science and the nomenclature of human movement in order to express it better, in order to literally produce the idea uh, because of the words. And um, so thanks for hanging in there with me. Um, just. Again, 
the words that we use are just uh, are really expressions of the ideas that hopefully come from our heart, come from our head, and uh, come from our understanding of human movement. And so I'll use a few more words to express my appreciation to you. And maybe with the most two powerful words that I can think of is thank you. Uh, thank you for taking what you do seriously and taking the uh, idea of just improving upon your abilities, uh, enhance your abilities, enhance your lives in order to ultimately enhance the lives of others, because that's what it's all about. Uh, so uh, please join us anytime at grandstude.com. And uh, please join us uh, with any of our specializations and of course our two certifications 3d maps and CAVs, where you learn this nomenclature all our specializations you learn this nomenclature you have to in order to for us to express what we need to express and of course at our chain reaction seminars you learn this nomenclature in depth and so on the next day when you go back to work the next day when you get to empower someone else you are able to utilize the word that ought to produce the idea in order to create a better chain reaction within a better environment than we did before in order to enhance the life of that person who has trusted us. Thanks again for joining us. May you be blessed as you continue to bless so many. This is John. Thanks for joining us here on the Gray Institute podcast. At Gray Institute, our goal is to do one thing the best we can, and that is to help you become the go-to movement professional. If you have a question for future podcasts or questions about anything Gray Institute offers, including education, live or online specializations, or mentorships, please email us at info at grayinstitute.com. If we use your question on air, we will send you some cool stuff. Be sure to look for our next podcast coming soon. Have a great day. Move your body, move your body.